Welcome to Spinning Out. I'm your host, Josh Robbins. This is a podcast where we talk to artists about their favorite albums. Today we're talking with Dylan and Justin Hensley of Punk Lotto Pod. We talked about Minutemen's classic 1984 album, Double Nickels on the Dime. We also talk about We Jam Econo and growing up in small towns outside the beaten path and how that must have influenced all of us and similarly had a big impact on the development of D. Boone and Mike Watt. Please check out our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash spinningoutpod. Check out our new weekly Patreon exclusive with my co-host Sarah Blumenthal. We recently chatted about albums by Wilco and Terror. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at spinningoutpod. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Those things sincerely help. Thanks so much for all of your support and all of our patrons. Okay, let's chat with my friends Justin and Dylan of Punk Lotto Pod. Hey, how are y'all doing today? Pretty good. Yeah, not too bad. And so I am speaking with Justin and Dylan from Punk Lotto Pod, and we are talking about Minutemen's 1984 record, Double Nickels on the Dime. And, well, before I get into that, I guess I'll say, um, so maybe it should be noted that uh, I must confess, I guess it turned out that inadvertently... If I'm saying that word right, um, I accidentally stole the idea of my podcast from you all. Um, so if you want to chastise me before we get into the discussion, I think that now would be the time. <laughs> it's funny. We, Dylan and I have actually joked about this since uh, Spinning Out started, I think. Or it, it shifted from being an Instagram show to a, being a full podcast. Mm -hmm. We were like... Um, <laughs> wait a minute he was on our show That's... where we talk about <laughs> records and now he's got a show where they talk about records <laughs> yeah i wonder where it's yeah. not the most well, novel idea right i mean <laughs> yeah i um i feel like it didn't even hit me at first because i think when i thought about uh punk lotto pod i thought of kind of like the old format mm -hmm. that you all had which was still talking about records uh, but was almost had you know more built in like a specific year mm -hmm. into it um so we we kept the year aspect we started with it was a much more random version of the show where we would like kind of have like a list of years from each decade and then like a list of an album and an ep from that year and then we'd give that list out and i remember we gave you the list one time and you were like i don't want to talk about any of these <laughs> <laughs> so that you got stuck with a a bad stranglers record yeah <laughs> yeah but wow the, and it also really feels like what i have to do on this because like when people give me usually what i do is i tell people to give me three records and then i'll trim it down to like either not not even all the time like my favorite one sometimes it's like mentally i pick a favorite and then i'll kind of make myself go to my least favorite um so that just kind of so that i'm kind of pushing myself because there's mm -hmm. like well, we're talking about Minutemen today. I would 
talk about something like Minutemen every episode if I could. Right. Uh, you know, so sometimes it's like I have to pick, you know, Fallout Boy or something. That's not even like the worst uh, example or anything. And mm-hmm. it's because it, it, I think it kind of forces me to like think about it in a different way or just kind of like not have that kind of knee jerk reaction to things and just uh, appreciate maybe appreciate it in a way that I never had. But going, I guess going back to the Punk Lotto Pod episode, um, I guess that was almost like a precursor in a way, um, because it was a record that I did not like, but it also I felt like gave me a lot to talk about in that regard. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah, we we decided to shift to letting the guests just like choose any record from the year because of that. Case. A lot of people. You weren't the only one who was like, I don't like any of these choices. We even had people cancel or like back out because they didn't like the list of options they had. So it was very much like, uh, okay, let's just make this as easy as possible for people. Yeah. And I think our shift happened around the same time you went from the Instagram show to actually posting them in podcast format. So I think we just did it at the same time. <laughs> Yeah, we copied you in a way. Oh, okay. okay, so well, that feels nice. Um, I, I love that y'all are just making me feel good about you know being a plagiarizer. Um, yeah, I think actually my my original idea for the podcast before even when it was the Instagram thing. Actually, I think I was thinking about how to shift from Instagram onto a podcast, and my thought was it was going to be a podcast only about our band could be your life. And uh, then with, like, talking with Sarah, my wife, she was like, why Why are you making it complicated? Just do what you're already doing. Like, if you talk about our band could be your life, you're only going to talk to, like, old dudes. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so so I was like, ah, oh, you're right. So <laughs> what I'm saying is I'm throwing her under the bus for that. Yeah. yeah. So Sarah is the intellectual property theft uh originator there yeah so please please charge uh send the summons to her which i guess would be my house too but then i'll promptly pass it to her and somehow that will also affect me horribly uh too but you know you know um so going back to minutemen when was the first time you heard minutemen and was it this specific record so i guess the first time i well, the first time I ever heard the Minutemen is probably the first time a lot of people heard the Minutemen as the theme song for Jackass uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> with the song Corona. <laughs> um, but I didn't know who did that song at that point. You know, I was pretty young when that show started. So I want to say college is when I first heard the Minutemen for the first time. Uh, probably like 05, 06. I, I did this thing early on in college so living at home we had like dial up and not strong internet connections so as soon as i got to college with like a fast like wi-fi or ethernet cable like i just downloaded everything i possibly could and so then it became like every punk band i'd ever heard about that i wanted to hear more about so i was just downloading like songs at a time through like a peer-to-peer download and Corona was probably the first thing I downloaded, but I probably got a few other songs like This Ain't No Picnic. And then after that, Double Nickels was probably the first Minutemen album that I listened to all the way through. It's kind of the iconic one. 
so that that's definitely why I probably gravitated towards it. But yeah. Dylan, do you remember when you started? <clears throat> I I have a vague memory of getting them getting into them in college too. Um, I think probably around the time the time that you first properly listened to Double Nickels on the Dime, I think you probably sent it to me. It was like you should listen to this. Um, but yeah, I would have heard random songs, you know, through what you had downloaded. Um, just because, I mean, we're brothers, so. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's how I really just got into everything I listened to. Uh, but I think probably the trajectory with, like, actually sitting down and listening to the Minutemen was the exact same thing as the both of you. You know, uh, I knew Corona, uh, but yeah, I didn't know that that was Minutemen. You know, mm-hmm. I I didn't know if it was. I didn't know <laughs> that it wasn't just like a theme song. Right. You know. Like, it wasn't just the, the King of the Hill theme song. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I would have I would have thought it was the refreshments. <laughs> yeah. As a teenager. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I definitely did, like, the same thing. I guess what we're saying with downloading music is that we are criminals, and if the mm-hmm. FBI is listening to this, we have downloaded lots of music for free. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, unlike anyone else. You know, we are the only criminals that have done wholly, that. Wholly unique. Yeah. Uh, but it was like just like basically you would uh, maybe some of a lot of it was before iPods, but um, it was like you would just plug your iPod into a friend's computer and then you're like, oh, now I have, you know, three gigs of power violence or something, you know, um, it just felt like the Matrix, you know, like, you know, I know. Kung I, would, fu. I had a friend who had like a he had like a terabyte, like a portable, <laughs> like, you know, USB, you know, hard drive and he would do that. He would like come to my computer and then like, I would like throw a bunch of my files on his computer. Then he throw a bunch on mine and then like, sweet. Now we both have each other's entire iTunes catalog, except for one time we spent hours of like doing that, switching back and forth. And then he didn't let me do whatever finalizing step you needed to do to save it on my computer. So that he just like, all right, cool, and like unplugged it, and then like all, everything I got off of his was gone. It wasn't use, useful, but he got all of my stuff, no problem. He did that on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder how big a terabyte thing was at that point. Yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> I'm sure this laptop that I have right now is way better than that, and it's nowhere near a terabyte. <laughs> yeah. Um. So I guess like. Dylan, I don't know if any of your experience past that was like any different than, you know, Justin's was. Yeah, it's interesting because I didn't get into them in until college. So no longer living in in the same house and being having that distance um, between us, my relationship with Minutemen grew independently. Um, I mean, and we would, you know, we would talk, but it was it was very rarely like a situation where we're in the car listening to the Minutemen together, Mm -hmm. like we, you know, had done with a lot of bands previously. So they kind of became my band, but I still thought of them as his band. When you have, when you, (laughs) I guess it's, it's a brother's thing uh, uh, or a sibling thing where it's like, that's your band. This is my band. (laughs) Um, So my, the Minutemen becoming my band was a much more gradual process, I think. Yeah. Over over several years. Yeah, I had that, that same experience, like, growing up with punk, and then at some point cho- kind of, like, purposefully chose to, like, get into metal 
so that that could be like my thing you know because like <laughs> yeah. you know my brother listened to like street punk and just like you know other kind of pop punk and fat records kind of stuff um and then i was just like i like hair bands now you know like i would get like <laughs> compilation that had like poison on it but also like you know started getting into metalcore because of that um but so it just like simply it's like i don't even know if in hindsight i liked it as much as i just wanted it to be my own thing you know do you dylan do you know who your band was versus mine so minutemen would have been mine mine is who's do yeah 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 the other double album band oh yeah yeah absolutely because i listened to zen arcade in high school Mm -hmm. probably downloaded it um stealing our (laughs) double stealing stealing our neighbor's wireless Mm. um downloaded that and that was that was i have a pretty distinct memory of listening to that and being like whoa like this is completely changing what i think punk is and can be um which the minutemen would do just at at a different pace drawn out over years i feel like yeah i feel like i oh and with revisiting it now i feel like i I like like it more and more as i get older um it's not to say i didn't like it like around the time that i was also discovering who's crew do but it definitely didn't hit in like the way that it does now uh with me and i'm not sure like what that says about me or why it gets better with age you know I have a distinct memory, too, of after college and, like, working at a bookstore and, like, worked in the music department, and I would I would look at any music-related book that came in or magazines, and, and Double Nickels always wound up being, like, one of those records that was always talked about as one of the, you know, the best punk records of all time. So part of it being that it's like a 40 something track album it has this huge reputation of being great and then even just getting into them at the exact right moment that it just was like it just grew over time of being like i like an important record i like a record that's like classic instead of just my weird personal taste of being like well i like this scene band that i saw a bunch of their shows (laughs) yeah yeah, and y'all grew up um, in. Did y'all grow up in like the Hickory area? Yeah, it's our teenage years. Like, we're from Davidson. Or, well, we're born in Charlotte, but like grew up in Davidson as kids and then as teenagers in Maiden, which is like mm. outside of Hickory. So Hickory yeah. was the big city that we went to. <laughs> yeah, to, to hang out. Hickory is where I spent my formative years in my high school death metal band mm-hmm. played played shows at arcades and teen teen centers yeah. <laughs> yeah so what was the kind of music scene in hickory or maiden like uh, maiden had no scene um because it's just too sprawling um yeah it's just small rural mm-hmm. hickory's yeah. was kind of like it was probably similar to charlotte's at the time it was probably more focused on metalcore going into deathcore mm-hmm. right there at the beginning of deathcore stuff there were there was like kind of like this gutter punk house it's called like the killing floor and so like noise artists would play there 
And then, like, weird bands like Mastodon played here a long time ago before they were big at, like, the Wizard Saloon, which is, like, a redneck motorcycle bar. But, like, somebody had a in. So then High on Fire played there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I guess it's, like, every few years it's some kind of booking person kind of tries to put Hickory on, like, the map again. Because mm-hmm. I feel like the last time I remember playing in hickory was really like around the time uh late bloomer started and yeah that might have been like our second show and i haven't heard anything about shows going on and that's not to say it doesn't but i i I have not (laughs) so i booked that show i don't know if you remember that that was a while back yeah um yeah that was me trying to book shows in hickory we got a coffee shop to agree to let us book shows and we did some cool stuff like they're really fun shows that happened there like our good friends old flings played a couple times um and then i even got a handful of touring bands to come through like heavier bands Mm -hmm. and i i loved having that in my town where i didn't have to like go to charlotte go to winston go to Asheville, like all these other cities so but at the same time like the person who ran the coffee shop eventually was like no this isn't bringing in enough money. Plus you damaged my walls and the parking lot was full of trash, which we didn't do. We didn't do any of that stuff. Yeah. So we lost our spot. And then that kind of was it for anything like punk or hardcore or metal or anything like that. It, there was a, there was a tiny, after the phase of us running shows, booking everything in Hickory, there was a tiny, tiny little like year where maybe like, two shows happened Mm -hmm. where someone was booking hardcore at i think a tattoo parlor Mm. um and it was it it was everything it was the same stuff that was playing when it was the metalcore scene in like 2006 like it was those bands that somehow still existed um and were still doing that sound 10 years later Mm -hmm. almost um tried to play again and it just it didn't take off i mean it just well it seems to be doing okay in charlotte like um i mean i don't know now after post pandemic but that style of metalcore um can still draw a decent amount like not in the way that it did like back in the day with uh because i don't don't know what was going on in like the (laughs) early 2000s like but it just felt like like you could fill a venue with local metalcore bands like and good size venues like Tremont Music Hall, and mm-hmm. if it was like mm-hmm. someone's record release show, they could play the big room. Yeah. But it's like I don't know anyone that draws that way now. <laughs> it it was weird. I don't. There was this weird. It's not a mainstream thing, but it definitely was more like high school kids were definitely into it more than you know the average person so like I, I guess it was younger it was like high school and like post high school aged people that were going to those shows mm-hmm. and then i honestly think switching to like that deathcore sound kind of killed off a lot of the interest in it because that's really gonna only appeal to a certain type of person yeah and then yeah. whatever it is the high schoolers got into i assume they stopped getting into rock based music and switched to I don't know. What was I don't next? know what I don't know what people switched to because even when I think of kind of, I guess if we're on the fifth wave of emo, um, on that variant of it, <laughs> um, then 
I don't. Those shows aren't as well attended as the memory of like metalcore shows in my youth. I remember like specific moments. It was like a closing skyline, which won't mean anything to anyone outside of Charlotte, maybe. Uh, but there were there was like two circle pits, like two mm-hmm. mosh pits, I guess, <laughs> um, in it. So it had enough people that there was one near the stage and then one near the back of the room, and they were both had a lot going on. You know, which sounds so silly to say, but it's like there were that many people to make that. Like, you couldn't do that now. But I don't know if maybe that's who knows what that is now. And the whole reason I'm even bringing this up is is I think about it in the parallels of kind of like this scene that Minutemen came out of. And um, almost like thinking of like San Pedro or those kind of places in uh, California, like that are outside of Los Angeles proper as almost like the hickory of, you know, that, uh, which is not probably not a one-to-one equivalent, but it's like, what it, what was San Pedro as a place that might be similar to, you know, how you all came up in music, and is that why uh, Minutemen, like, resonates with you? I think so, to a degree. Um, it, there's, the, I mean, the all-time, one of those absolute great Minutemen, song, Minutemen songs on Double Nickels, um, is what is it world history part two Mm -hmm. um when he talks about uh me and mike watt uh going up to going up to hollywood or learning punk rock in hollywood like that idea of driving in from out of town and becoming a part of a scene and learning about music is that's that resonates deeply with me and with my relationship with Justin, especially as far as like, cause we would drive. I mean, we would, you know, we, we had a little bit of a scene, but it was local level. And if you wanted to see any big touring bands as a teenager, it was, you drive to Asheville, you drive to Charlotte, you drive to Carborough, mm-hmm. you know, we would go drive six hours in one day just to see, not even always to see like the full bill. It was just like, there's one band opening that we wanted to see. And we would go drive there and watch that one band and leave. <laughs> yeah. um, so that 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 definitely resonates with me. It probably why it's one of my favorite uh, Minutemen songs. But yeah, and when in Ouijiami Kano, um, you know, they kind of talk about like kind of being, I guess, fish out of water kind of thing. Like when you went to Charlotte for shows, or I guess even Asheville, because Hickory has the ability that I feel like you can kind of get to a few places within almost an hour of each way, like Asheville, Charlotte, and even like Winston, I think you could essentially get to it an hour. Um, so being central, we would go to every kind of corner. I mean, it's not North. You wouldn't really go North cause Boone didn't have much of a scene until like later when, like 2015 you know. probably yeah, yeah yeah when when our good friend john russell from knowing was doing shows yeah. up there at the what was the name of that house circle uh wood circle house uh, yeah it was like mm-hmm. john and then the other john so there were a lot of johns yeah. that were booking shows <laughs> in boone yeah. john uh, rebus yeah. um so yeah there, there was a really good scene for a good minute um and boone, boone kind of has like a i guess boone has the luxury of kind of being like a destination like hickory is always kind of viewed as like a pass-through in a way i mm-hmm. feel like like you kind of mm-hmm. you know maybe yeah yeah like Asheville had a cool punk scene charlotte had a 
bigger scene that was a little couple different things like there were punk bands there were metalcore bands i feel like greensboro winston was probably more hardcore metalcore stuff and then like we'd only go to like raleigh or carborough for big shows like you know touring bands that we were super into like i feel like it informs you in a different way and i guess i'm coming at this as like i grew up in wilmington north carolina so i feel like it's like you kind of create your own identity with like just crumbs you know? mm-hmm. And then it's just yeah. kind of like you put it all on. And so that's that's what the Minutemen feel like. There's so much going on. And that speaks to me because that's like I didn't have anyone telling me that I couldn't listen to. I don't know why this band is jumping. I, you know, I listened to Cream just because I didn't, you know, I didn't know anything. I listened to Cream. I listened to Led Zeppelin. I listened to Off Ivy. And, you know, uh, it feels like no one told Minutemen to do anything. And I don't think punk was that for- was definitely not that formed at that point. Um, but there were already like bands like the exploited and stuff like that, you know, so, but just, they truly did whatever they want. And still to this day, like no one sounds like the Minutemen, you know, except None. Firehose, which is still Mike Locke. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Two thirds of the Minutemen. Yeah. yeah. And a guy who desperately tries to play like D Boone. Yeah. Yeah. yeah they... Like watching We Jam Econo, it's funny to like hear them tell the stories about how they didn't know the difference between what a guitar and a bass were. Like they just thought <laughs> they just liked the way it looked. But I like four strings. Well, I like six strings. Like that was like the only <laughs> difference in the instruments. They would like tune all the strings to the same note. Like they, I guess that comes from just being kids and not really knowing a whole mm-hmm. lot. But yeah. it seemed like they carried that even up until like. They were doing the reactionaries and then forming the Minutemen. They still did like a lot of like, what is it? They were flyering or going up to a sh- no. They went up somewhere for a show and then wound up running into the members of Black Flag who were flyering for another show. And then they were like, "Yeah, we're a band. We play in San Pedro. You should come down. We'll play a show." And then their first show was with Black Flag. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it was, Black Flag was early enough in their career too that it was like one of their early shows, but. They just did whatever they wanted because there wasn't a, one. It was early enough that there weren't a super established set of rules, but two, they were far enough away from everyone else that they could do whatever they wanted. They could do a Blue Oyster Cult cover included on the record. Who nobody said you couldn't. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. It just also makes me think like this record coming out in '84 and then kind of like. Well, the same year, like, My War came out, and the same year, Zen Arcade came out. And I think, like, similarly to me, uh, Dylan, like, I guess, I guess, like, Husker Du was definitely, like, that first kind of pivotal thing. Um, do you feel like you consistently listen to Husker Du on a regular basis now? Or has that changed? Not really. Yeah. <clears throat> I feel like it's it's tapered off. But, I, I mean, I typically do that with most bands that i really love i spend a few years aggressively listening to them um and then kind of back off and then maybe i have a phase where i'm like i really want to listen to them all the time again yeah and maybe work through their discography or something like that um so yeah it's definitely it's definitely a little slower i don't i don't listen to who's do constantly 
despite my screen name on everything. <laughs> yeah, I, I felt like I had a point where I had to almost like not talk about who Screw as much because I just thought people would think I'm obsessed. And then I feel like I don't ever talk about who Screw at all. But then also having a Who's Do tattoo that's visible on my arm <laughs> kind of says everything for me. Um, but yeah, it's like a weird thing where I don't feel like I'm like listening to it all the time and then sometimes feel bad about it. Like it's like, <laughs> how is it your favorite band if you're not listening to it every month or something? You know, it's like I don't know if I've listened to Who's Do in like the last year. Um, yeah. You know, but I feel like I find myself going back to Minutemen more. And I don't know if that's just kind of like how things switch you know i haven't burnt myself out on it yet yeah yeah i definitely understand that too i like on our show i feel like i talk about super junk all the time like all the time and to the point where like even when i'm i'm we it comes up as saying like oh that's my favorite record came out that year like my one of my favorite bands period my favorite album by them it came out that year and i'm like i can't talk about that because I've, i've talked about them too much already yeah, and then you kind of just never do. Yeah, because yeah, you kind of hold sure. that in your head. Um, <laughs> and yeah, but one thing I guess on the documentary that I was thinking of is, as much as they seem to pull from everything, there was a conscious effort to pull from bands like Wire and the Pop Group, and you can hear that a lot. But I almost kind of wonder, like, if people kind of came to the sound, like, where where did the sound come from? I guess that's the question. I'm asking, um, but everything wasn't like in a vacuum. It wasn't like one thing happened and then the next. So, but it's interesting that, you know, bands like the wire or pop group, or even like kind of early post-punk informed, uh, Minutemen already. Cause wire was like 80, I guess. And pop group, they put it on an album in like 80 and like 81. Um, so just kind of like, I guess post-punk is the question. <laughs> yeah. They, they have such a unique sound, especially with who they associated with on SST and that, that what the type of records that were coming out on that label at that point. Cause even the very, very earliest Minutemen re- like seven inches. Yes, they're fast. So you would call them hardcore records, but they don't sound like a black flag seven inch at the same time, yeah. you know, or an adolescent seven inch. Well, they had such a, conceptual uh, goal I felt like even early on they were I mean even like as simple as like I turned the treble up on my guitar because the guitar is the treble instrument and I turned the bass up on the bass because the bass is the bass instrument Mm -hmm. like and you don't you don't cross that um, EQ threshold for each of those instruments and you have that separation of those instruments and what they do like they were thinking about the way their instrument sounded beyond just I want it to sound loud or I want it to sound angry. Like they wanted it to make some kind of abstract statement. Yeah. Yeah. But whenever, whenever they kind of talked about the part of, uh, that you were mentioning where they didn't really know what a bass was. Um, but there, there was a, somewhat similar story is like Bootsy Collins was being interviewed and said essentially he played guitar uh, or he played bass out off of a guitar and just played it out of a guitar amp and just kind of like down tune the strings some so it's like 
I guess it's like a product of just not having the money too to also buy a base. So you just kind of make do. But somewhere along the way, which they don't really like credit themselves with, they actually got good at being musicians. <laughs> like, and that's the difference. Like, it's like I know so many people that kind of had makeshift instruments that could never figure out how to tune it. And I mean, that was essentially me for many years. And I didn't get super good. So I know that's usually the case, but somewhere along the way, they did figure it out, and they don't really talk about that enough, you know? Uh. Yeah, you listen to the way they play, um, especially D. D Boone, the way he plays guitar. Like, I mean, you can tell that he's self-taught to a degree because he writes the same guitar solo more or less in every song yeah. like it's he, he very heavily relies on the same licks and and techniques for his guitar solos and things like that but then you listen to something like cohesion track three the um the solo acoustic song that he does and he's he's doing like spanish classical fingerstyle guitar like really well i wonder if they took lessons and they just they don't want to say that because that's not punk yeah i don't know they're they're all like they're all really good. I, I'd say, just Mike Watt and D and um, George Hurley, like they play like jazz musicians a lot of times. Mm-hmm. So like you can't. I don't feel like you can just learn how to do that from punk music. You, yeah. yeah, that has to be like either they just like studied or played constantly, or yeah, they had they had to have had lessons. There's no way you can just like. pick up those signatures and (laughs) unless there was i don't know if there were like i don't know enough about pedro to know if there was maybe like a small jazz club or something that they could sit in and with with those kind of players and and learn from that um i could see that (laughs) yeah it's yeah it's really funny like maybe they just did what all of us didn't do is they really actually studied like Mel Bay books, you know, <laughs> and just, like really put it to the test and just actually sat there. And I guess like it, bef- before the internet, what better activity did you have to do than like practice scales? Yeah. <laughs> so, well, and read cause they were both, they were all super smart. Like they were way into left politics. That's part of like their philosophy in the band too, is they were very democratic. Like the the treble and the bass being separate was designed because they agreed on being equal in the role in the band. But then yeah, the studying history and politics, like the way these you know, these songs are about pretty yeah. complicated and I mean, stuff. And that that just comes from them. Like they didn't go to college, they weren't academic. Like that came from an innate desire, I guess, to learn. Um, Because, I mean, what I do know of Pedro is that it was very poor, Um, still is very poor. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a port city, so it's a lot of sailors. Um, I think one of their parents was a sailor. I'm not sure who. That explains the anchor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I guess if if it's kind of a if it's a port city, then I think that imagery, and kind of if it's like a very working class place, then that's just gonna kind of like by osmosis, you know, kind of go to them. But but the fact that they got into kind of leftist politics in a time that 
didn't explicitly even have to be leftist. Like you didn't have to be to exist in punk. Like, yeah. Um, cause it's like when I think about myself, like even pre-internet or at the beginning of it, like me and my friends just threw rocks at each other. Like, <laughs> like we didn't, we didn't practice scales and I guess I'm telling on myself, you know, but it's like, you know, I, I don't know. I don't even know what I'm trying to say. It's just like, they seem like they were like good kids that wanted to learn. They were just like voracious readers and voracious, like I need to practice. Like, you know, I could see them as people that practice like eight hours a day, you know, and, and the type of person that just slowed down a record and kind of played along to it too. You got like better, but I didn't have that discipline. I just wanted to throw a rock at, you know, (laughs) one of my friends. Yeah. I'll tell on myself a little bit. Um, I took, two years of classical guitar in college and I cheated constantly. I, I would sit there in my like 30 minute session with a guitar instructor and I would watch him play the pieces that he wanted me to play and like try and like memorize what his fingers were doing. And then I would like stare blankly at the sheet music and just like, doo, <laughs> And try to remember what he played, and I would kind of be able to get the melody. And then I would go home, take my sheet music, plug it into get into uh, Guitar Pro, and generate tabs, and then just sit there and like <laughs> practice it for an hour and memorize it. You know, t- two hours and memorize it, and then show up and like suddenly I know the piece, and and then I'm just like bullshitting the whole time. Like, yeah, I mean, it is like a way of bullshitting, tabs. but you did actually at the end of it know the piece. But I did not meet the standards of classical guitar <laughs> pedagogy. I couldn't, I can't read sheet music. Yeah. I don't, <laughs> so, I don't, I can't imagine that anyone, in, and I could be wrong, and this is what we kind of keep circling around. I don't feel like they knew, they know how to read sheet music, like any of them, you know, mm-hmm. but it, it's, there was some sort of practice that happened a lot for them to get this way because, like, like George and the documentary wanted to say, like, it's like, I didn't know what I was doing, and if I, you know, I think there is a little bit of, like, if you want to do something enough, you can kind of, like, will yourself to do it. Like, I think back, like, with, like, skateboarding and BMX, it's like you didn't have skill, but if you were, like, not afraid to just throw yourself downstairs, you could eventually (laughs) do something. So (laughs) there is that element uh, with even playing music that um, you just kind of huck yourself and hope you land it. Um, But they don't – that's, like, how I play music. Like, I feel like I faked my way to this very moment right here. And, um, but they, they know exactly what they're talking about. Um, you know, so I'm giving them a lot of credit there. Um, so I guess if we want to go through the, uh, I guess the tracks on this 40 some song record, we can, you know. Yeah. We can, we can group them. I guess we can discuss the, maybe an easier way to to boil it all down mm. is the the pseudo um concept for this double album uh which was <laughs> half-assed inspired by uh Zen Arcade <laughs> knowing that that was coming out they were like oh shit let's make a double album and then they they went and wrote a bunch more songs um but they they grouped each side is for one of the three members, and then the last side is chaff. Yeah, which is just the leftovers. So that 
might be an easier way to look at 45 tracks or however many. yeah i kind of do the same thing like i do a lot with a lot of the earlier guided by voices records where it's almost like you can't you almost can't think of one song as like a song or you i i, I personally feel like i get overwhelmed with it like it's a suite of songs mm-hmm. that you know it's like four songs equal like one song <laughs> you know um so mm-hmm. yeah looking at it and based on the sides um and they said that they kind of based that around like a specific pink floyd record yeah um you know mm-hmm. so Ooh. split up between each side Uma Guma. Oh, okay. yeah. yeah yeah they also um they took turns picking tracks for their sides too i think it was basically they had the giant pile and then they were each george got <laughs> to go first and he picked the one he wrote which is just him like scatting over some bongos like arguably one of the worst songs on the <laughs> on the album well they all they all have their solo track mm-hmm. yeah. like his is um glory of man is that it yeah i believe so or you need the glory yeah there's, there's glory twice on this record right mm. yeah this is the only time that i haven't written down all of the tracks because once um, again there are four, 40 yeah, some you need, tracks you need um, the glory you need the glory yeah. is is the george scat track yeah. and then yeah the 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 final side was just the leftovers and then listening to the the album today and like writing my notes on the album I see why all the leftovers are on side chaff. Like it's like some of the weakest songs plus like two covers like the, the doc, uh, the Steely Dan cover and the uh, Van Halen cover. Yeah. But then there's even like a song that was written by Henry Rollins on that side, storm in my house, like co-written like the best song on that side of the record i think is untitled song for latin america and then little man with a gun in his hand which was a re-recording of one off buzzer howl which mike hated he didn't like how it sounded on this one so they cut it for the cd version because that's the other thing about this album is like depending on where you're listening to it you're going to be missing tracks yeah, I, some of these I I listen to it just on Spotify. Um, so uh, yeah, the cut kind of cover songs I don't believe are on there. Um, Doctor Wu mm-hmm. is yeah, Dr. and Wu. the the live version of Don't Look yeah, Now the Credence cover on there, but mm-hmm. they they cut Ain't Talking About Love by Van Halen. They also cut the Little Man. Uh, re-recording um, and they cut something off of George's side, one of the jam songs mm-hmm. uh, Mr. Robot's Holy yeah. Orders, which is just like a it's not even really a song, it's just a jam yeah, I mean in the same way that like when I even think about Zen Arcade and I think it's an amazing record but it's I usually think no double album really needs to be a double album <laughs> Like, like I don't like. I think that if you took the best, if you took the best songs on this record, you would have like undeniably one of the best records. It still is one of the best records. It's just like it would be even better. Like, do you feel like it benefits from being the record that it is, or do you like? I guess do you disagree with me on that? 
So I I disagree with with it in the sense that I don't think this record would be the thing it is without being a double album. I don't know that it necessarily if it was just like twenty stacked songs, it probably would be like hell yeah that record's good. But it would be treated probably the same way their earlier records are treated, like the punchline or what makes a man start fires. Like they're great and they're short. I think what makes Double Nickels so special is the experience of listening to all four sides of the record. I would agree with Justin. I think it's this it's and it's very weird to me because I don't like albums with lots of little filler things mm-hmm. and um I I complain about those things on records all the time on our show <laughs> yeah um but this is a record where it's it's one of those rare exceptions where it's like i like the weird jam tracks i like uh you know mike watt reading a note from his downstairs uh uh land landlord complaining about the shower leaking um, yeah i love that song mm-hmm. i even like george's scatting like it's <laughs> weird and silly but like i get it like I get what they were trying to do with it. And I guess it's mostly just what they're trying to do is pull a lot of things under one umbrella. Mm-hmm. And I think if you take those things out, I think it's just a really good punk record mm-hmm. and maybe not necessarily the the work of art that I think of it as. Yeah, I can see that. Cause I think like if you take all of the like, on any like big boys record, if you take uh, if you take and just leave all the punk songs in, they're way less interesting of a band. So, in the mm-hmm. same regard, like I don't like I, I I like the punk songs because of what they're put up against. Um, so then in that regard, like yes, I probably wouldn't like a shorter Minutemen record because yeah, it would just be all the punk songs, I guess, because that would have been the thought to do at the time. The you wouldn't take a lot of these songs out of the record and like say, here you go. Listen to toadies by itself. Like you wouldn't really just be like now listen to, you know, <laughs> number one hit song by well, number one hit song. You actually probably could listen to by itself. There's a lot of tracks on this record that you couldn't pull off of the record and just give to someone by themselves and tell them to listen to it. And they'd be like, what is this? Like what? I don't understand. Yeah. What's the point of you know, the roaring of masses could be farts, you know, like (laughs) (laughs) point being like, yes, you probably wouldn't, you probably wouldn't like put that song on a playlist for Mm -hmm. a friend. Like it wouldn't make any sense. Um, you know, like if you were putting it, if you were putting it, uh, making a list of like the top 20 Minutemen songs, I don't think it would be on the, it would potentially not be on there, but I, I like that song a lot. Like, yeah, like that that is a weird thing. So I guess I'm I'm kind of uh I'm now agreeing with you all. I think that this record is is perfect the way it is because it's there's nothing like it. Like I don't know how even to say it better. Um but I also kind of just think of like what it influenced. What it influenced um that dude who plays guitar in Firehose, uh, that karate uh, in the <laughs> what is it where they do a couple of Minutemen covers? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, like I I can't. There was a distinct guitar tone 
on one of these songs and I was like, holy shit, that's that sound. That's that sound that like a lot of hardcore bands use today. It's that really bright, almost like a brittle sounding. Oh, Gloria Man. So it yeah. has this like time on, you know, the time on or the space measure. Like it's just this very like bright kind of like staccato style. Just like, I don't know. I've heard hardcore bands do that though. Like newer hardcore bands will do that kind of thing. And I and I would listen to those records and be like, what is this sound? What is the root of this sound? And listening to this record today, I was like, there it is. That's the sound. That's the sound that these more jangly, reverby hardcore bands are using. It's just this one song. I don't I don't know that like the rest of their discography necessarily influences that. Yeah. I think I think that maybe goes back to wire and their wire influence. True, mm-hmm. true. Yeah, a lot of times I like to think that it's it's like is the Minutemen like was something like the Minutemen did that lead to something like Red Hot Chili Peppers? But then when you look at Flyers, there's Flyers with Minutemen and Red Hot Chili Peppers playing <laughs> together. So it's like I guess it's really just wire. And then so from that extension, from there it's like, and we kind of said it at the top, like who sounds like Minutemen and like. Who who kind of wears it as a direct influence in you know twenty twenty one or sometime throughout history? Like it stands as like its own thing still to today. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, unless there's like something I'm missing there. Yeah, I've never been able to find another band that sounded like the Minutemen that wasn't just doing. Nobody's even really doing direct copies. Like there's some covers occasionally, but like, yeah, sound wise. I can't think of anyone who's just trying to do the Minutemen. Maybe that that adds to the uniqueness of them as in as musicians, like or especially D Boone, because like Mike Watt has released a lot of solo records, and they're they're kind of like the Mike Watt songs in Minutemen song, you know, <laughs> albums. Yeah, bassy, weird time signatures, muttering, talking, you know, not so much singing. But without, without D Boone, I don't enjoy those records the same way. And I don't, and I don't hear D Boone on anyone else's sound, really. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't. As much as I like Firehose, uh, I, you know, I don't. It's, it doesn't resonate in the same way as uh, Minutemen does to me. And that's to no discredit of, I mean, of Firehose. Like I, I think they're really great and super underrated as well. Um, mm-hmm. I do really like the Mike Watt solo record. Uh, it's got a really long kind of title, Tugboat Ball Hog. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, that that record's really good, and I realized that within like the last like couple of years. Um, so I guess anyone listening, I would recommend that as well. Um, I, I mean, I would easily recommend people to revisit uh, Firehose records because I think they're a lot better than. Uh, I don't feel like as as little as I hear people talk about Minutemen, I hear no one talk about Firehose. Maybe I just have horrible friends, you know. So, do, you know, you mentioned that, and I'm like, you know, I don't really know a lot of people who talk about the Minutemen. The only people who talk about the Minutemen are music journalists who are trying to, you know, put a thousand and one records in a book, you know, to die, read, mm-hmm. listen to before you die, you know. Or Rolling Stones putting it on their list. So I don't... Yeah. Who is listening to the Minutemen in 2021? 
Yeah, they they feel like a band that someone could easily be like, no one actually likes the Minutemen. They just like to say that they like the Minutemen. Yeah, I could see that being a thing. But at the same time, I feel like you could give this record to someone who probably hasn't heard anything like it before. And they would, if they weren't blown away by some of the impressive aspects of the record, they would at least be like, they would be like, this is weird, like, and different. Like, <laughs> I, I've definitely encountered people who don't like Minutemen, but get their influence and maybe, like, understand why they have the esteem that they have. Um, I've never encountered anyone who's like, Minutemen suck. It's total bullshit. Like, I, I've never encountered that. So, and I haven't really seen a lot of like accusations of them being a band that you say that you like that you don't really like. But I, I guess that's probably just because they don't, I mean, like we said, they don't really get talked about that much. So. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, yeah. I try and just kind of place like who they are to like the outside world, which is hard because I just, like today, it's like today at work, I listened to like uh, for this uh, country artist called uh, Ferlin Husky. So it's like, I'm not the person to ask, you know, <laughs> like it's like, and I'm not saying that in some esoteric way. Like I find myself being like, oh, I wonder if like Dolly Parton covered this, you know, Wings of a Dove or something, you know, like that's where my <laughs> mind is now more than like are younger people like listening to Minutemen. But I also am curious, like it's like, do you feel like people, like kids in their 20s are kind of rediscovering them in the way that I feel like a few years ago, it's like every band tried to sound like Black Flag? There has to be someone rediscovering them because, or there's at least people who've never heard them that would probably really like them if they did. I'll give a good, I'll give an example of, not with the Minutemen, but with, it was with Husker Du. We, we had a guest on our show, like they admitted on the show that like they didn't really listen to Husker Du. They weren't super familiar with their discography. Like they understood their importance, but they just never dove into themselves. And so they asked us to make a playlist for them of like key Husker Du songs. And then like we gave them the playlist that was months ago. And then like a few weeks ago, I got a response from them said, Hey, I've been blasting that Husker Du playlist since, you know, you gave it to me and they are now a major influence for me. And so like there's people who haven't heard it yet. So, yeah, I don't know. It just, ha I guess it has to take like a certain music nerd who wants to like deep dive on stuff that they're unfamiliar with. And since this is such an old record, mm -hmm. it's, it's going to be harder for someone who's not super diving into 80s music is going to find it. So, one thing, I guess, like what we were talking about off the top, like, what is it the type of person that, kind of discovers music i feel like what we do similarly like is that like a personality type or is it something that used to happen that's not happening anymore like you know like it's a, it's a weird thing to why, why are we like this is what i'm asking we're <laughs> we're nerds i think that's <laughs> okay, what it uh, is yeah. <laughs> no <laughs> there's a reason that a copy of double nickels on the dime is 
one of the main records that's on the wall in Rob Gordon's apartment in High Fidelity. <laughs> um, You're telling like me we're nerds? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> we're nerds, man. That's, we're just nerds about music. It seems like we're cooler because it's music. Because it's, yeah, right, because it's punk rock. But like <laughs> the way that we talk about it and think about it, it's it's not cool. Yeah, I always thought that that was funny, or even with the, when you're thinking about like metal musicians that get really good at arpeggios and things like that. <laughs> um, it's like, at least with Minutemen, you know, they they all seem like goofy guys, and you can you know kind of understand that they were the type of person that sat in their room for eight hours, but a really good guitar player in like a black metal band or death metal band, he still did that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they still sat in their room, but they're like, they act angry. But what's also great is like, if you meet somebody that's like, it, that kind of does that posturing, let's say they're in a death metal band and I get the shtick, but if you can kind of like say something to them, you can like watch them kind of crumble and just become <laughs> the nerd that they are. Is like the, the best thing to me. Like figuring out like what just makes them become like a, their inner child again. I mean, you've you've <laughs> definitely spent time with people who are like really good at guitar or like really really good at drums, mm-hmm. and they they're they're very much like oh yeah you're a nerd like <laughs> you just yeah. you just channeled it into this thing that like other people can appreciate whereas other nerds which I'm a comic book nerd, so like I can't channel that into something that other people can appreciate. It's like, well, I read a bunch of Spider-Man stories, you know, like, or be really into <laughs> Star Wars, you know, like, that doesn't create something. So I guess we ascribe a little bit more, like, cool factor to just uh, uh, someone who's super into music, because, or at least a musician who's, who's super into studying their instrument. I don't know what... Mm. Nobody thinks podcasters are really cool, so that may be... <laughs> I, I I don't know about that. I think I'm pretty cool. Uh, like okay, so then, Dylan, what? How are you a nerd then? <clears throat> I'm mostly the same way as Justin into comic books and music and. Well, okay, and then like. Another thing that I'm kind of weird and nerdy about is like classic cars like i'm not into classic cars in a cool way i'm like really into very specific classic cars like like a certain range of years of buicks okay and that's it like that's all i'm interested in i don't care about any chevy or dodge or like i can i can appreciate them aesthetically but i'm like i know details and facts about buicks that's it what do you own any of them I own a Buick. Okay. I own a Riviera, a '68. Okay, I feel like I knew that. Um, yeah, my pandemic unhinged purchase. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, I think about that. Like, I don't know what type of nerd I am. Um, so I guess this is a switch from the Minutemen podcast into like some therapy that y'all are helping <laughs> me with. Um, I feel like I've done this thing my whole life where I'm, I just kind of get into little pieces of everything. And so it's like, I don't know if I could just say that I'm like one thing. I mean, it would be easy to say like I'm a music nerd because I have a music podcast, but I can't talk to you about like how to play music. Like I have no concept, (laughs) you know, we have not really talking, talked about anything on this record. So clearly I'm not a music nerd. So if you know what type of nerd I am, let me know. 
you are a type of music nerd though because it is about the appreciation side of things because i agree i can't talk about like oh arpeggios or like oh what down tuning was that or anything like that so I don't know that it's a useful form of nerd, you know, nerdism, but <laughs> like, yeah, I, yeah, but yeah, I mean, you know, I feel like, you know, music history, punk music history, mm-hmm. especially, but probably broader than that. I mean, you talked about Ferlin Husky. Yeah. Okay. Then <laughs> so, I, yeah. Yeah. Oh, so I am a music historian. Yeah. Okay. Yes, this sounds good. Music. Uh, I don't know where I'll use it for. I guess my actual job that I have, um, which is as a concert poster archivist. (laughs) Um, So wait. Oh, damn, it did work out for me. Yeah. Um, Yeah. (laughs) But it doesn't for most people. Like It's like as a comic book fan, this hasn't really helped your life in certain aspects. No, you know, and I'm I'm not like making you second guess it or like like because I think it is a rich thing. Like I think like if people are really good at video games and it gives their life some meaning, like who is it? Like why why would someone just be like you're wasting your life? I mean I know probably a lot of people say that to them, but it's like what do those people have? You know, and somehow we can connect this back to Minutemen if we have to, <laughs> you know. But uh, but it's like on paper when I'm watching We Jam Mikano, um to any outside person they're just like losers they weren't like successful at that point and even at in that regard like i think mike watt seems to just live in like a one-bedroom apartment and i'm not saying any of this negatively i think sometimes those pursuits that kind of enrich your life like maybe reading uh, a book about you know some south american revolution you can't bring that up at most dinner parties but that's not to say that it's not making your life better yeah, the interesting thing about Mike Watt, too, is that he's also married to Kira Rossler of Black Flag. Was. Oh, they divorced. Yeah. Yeah. I think in the documentary, they were still together. Um, I think yeah. they're just, like, still friendly. Yeah. You know? Well, like, I think, I can't imagine that he has a lot of enemies. No. Well, like, I was going to say, though, that she's, like, an Academy Award winning, like, sound engineer for, like, movies. Like, I was watching a movie mm-hmm. that came out last year. And her name is in the credits. So it is funny that they may choose, they may have chosen to live in a little bit more stripped down. I mean, that kind of goes to the Ouija Amicano. Like they, they purposely Mm -hmm. reused tape. They tried to find the cheapest alternatives to recording. Like they got that one guy to record like an entire EP for like 50 bucks because they gave him like some songs for a comp. And like that's how yeah. that's how he got you know got it so cheap. And did y'all read anything about the guy who recorded? It? Do you know? Uh, so Ethan James, what I looked up um, is so he played in Blue Cheer mm-hmm. from sixty nine mm-hmm. to seventy two. So I don't know. That's cool to me. <laughs> yeah, which I imagine was cool to them too because they were definitely yeah. fans of what we'd call classic rock now. But like you know, early seventies late 60s rock they definitely were fans of i mean they do blue oyster cult covers and ccr so yeah they they were definitely into it plus they used to have like someone like write for them that was like a journalist that they really liked so like yeah they were definitely appreciators of that kind of thing as well so yeah they would probably jump at the opportunity to record with i think they recorded multiple things with the guy from 
blue cheer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess like what I am basically asking both of you is like, how do you feel like records like this or this specific record has kind of like informed how you look at the world? A lot. Um, that, that idea of we jam Econo. Like, I can't say that I'm like the most economic person. I, I have a collector car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But even still, it's like that mentality of holding on to things, using them efficiently. Um, and maybe that, you know, I know a lot of that comes from, you know, being growing up from a working class background. Um, we just kind of have that similar background. I feel like that's just a, a thing that you do. You're like, you make things work. You you fix things. You use them um, for as long as possible. Um, you, you know, they they use cheap instruments. Like, I I think that cheap instruments. I you know I love expensive cool gear, but I can also I've used the same rat pedal for ten years. That's you know I bought for forty bucks on eBay. Yeah, and I will use it for the rest of my life. I'll be buried with it. Like, you know, it's just that that mentality has shaped the way I look at music and i think that the way that this record is is kind of scattered and draws from all of these different places that that's inspired me to look to other genres of music um like getting into this record as a college kid like i was definitely like punk hardcore you know coming out of being kind of a metalhead and being in this really limited range of music of angry music mostly mm-hmm. and listening to the Minutemen at a time where I was also kind of listening to some like acoustic music some country music. I, I think that my interest in country music has just as much to do with Minutemen as it does, you know, my grandfather singing like Johnny Cash. Like those two things are like kind of tied in this really abstract way. I've, I've always just thought of this album I don't know I don't know how what its impact on my life going forward like you know since hearing it really is I've just always been fascinated with this record like it's just like this puzzle of an album that I like have to listen to to try and figure out everything about them I don't know mm-hmm. I get a lot of, this record hits me in an emotional place, I think. Um, D. Boone's death probably is the main motivator behind that. But I listen to tracks like uh, History Lesson Part 2, and like I get weepy. Like mm-hmm. there's, there's an acoustic set that they filmed for some like cable access television show, probably 85, and it's just the three of them sitting on the floor playing two acoustic guitars and George is on bongos. And I pull that up once a year and I watch it and I'm like devastated when they get to history lesson every single time. Like maybe it's just the connection that they're best friends that they've known each other since childhood. And then D's gone now. 
I don't know. There's there's an emotional thing in this record that like hits me every time. And when they made it, he was alive. You know, they didn't think he was gonna die in a car wreck in the end of '85. You know, so they had no idea that was coming. So I don't know what it is about that album specifically, but yeah, yeah. I mean, it feels like like when I listen to it, like I feel like I can almost like do anything I want to musically, like and also if I can't, uh, it's like I, any, like no music is out of bounds. Like it's like everything is there. So it's like when I'm listening to double nickels on the dime, I feel like, um, it's telling you to like, go experience these things, you know, like go listen to, like you were saying, saying Dylan, like go listen to country, go listen to, cause it's kind of all there in little minute ways. Um, and it kind of it's like a thing that I go back to that almost like reminds me that it's okay to kind of be this way, you know. <laughs> um, so it's like a resetting thing for me. It it's so different too. It 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 doesn't have like a resetting quality to it. It. Well, yeah, the way one of the a big part of why this record I feel like I I come back to it continually is because i experience something different on it almost every time like there's the you know there are the familiar high marks and like what you would think of as maybe the singles or whatever like you think of that but then this time like i listened to it and was like really really struck by um the the transition from toadies into retreat and that song retreat especially it was just like this is huge and intense and so different from everything else on this record um and yeah like in in the last few years i've explored jazz a lot and one of the things that i've found really exciting and enjoyable about jazz is listening to it and thinking oh that sounds like something that that the minimum were influenced by like hearing Mingus Charles Mingus like scat and scream as he's playing and the band is playing I'm like that sounds like the Minutemen to me you know Ornette Coleman doing crazy things that he does with this with these amazing melodies at the same time like that sounds to me like D Boone having these anthems but the band is kind of just this chaotic fast too fast honestly you know his guitar solos are just too fast why are you playing them slow (laughs) down but that that urgency that i've i've been able to connect that over the years too yeah to jazz music so yeah yeah i mean i feel like i'm i'm just gonna kind of repeat myself but just like it it like when i listen to this a bunch and then listen or watch we jam Mikano it just like when I went about like, I don't know, went to band practice and just kind of like, it felt like it it is like what I needed, you know, it's kind of just there to remind me like why I like the things I like, you know, and that's like a unique thing that, you know, even like this today in 2021, like my war doesn't hit me in that way now, you know, like it's like, I don't know the last time I listened to black flag and you know, that's like something I used to listen to daily you know um to tail off of that this is an album that never gets old for me i've 
it's probably one of the records I've listened to the most in my one of the records I've listened to most in my life, at least in my adult life. Um, Cause even the records that like I grew up on or even like, yeah, albums that I listened to just a lot within a, like a year's time span, they're worn out for me. Like I don't, I don't want to hear it again. Like there's, there's certain bands and sounds that I have no interest in going back to. I, I got all the fulfillment out of those bands that I could have in the past. Miniman is like this never ending. Well, this record especially is just like the never ending well of like entertainment and joy and yeah, it has yet to get old with me. I mean, for me, maybe the fact that it's like 40 plus tracks helps and there's a lot to look at, but I mean, I've heard the big voice a hundred times, you know, and it's still good to me, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I feel like this record has like a quality too, where, I mean, you can start it from the beginning, but I feel like I can just hop in anywhere in it and kind of listen to it as long as I need to and then kind of go about my day and, you know, like kind of listen to a record and then put on some of the Minutemen record and then kind of jump off from there. It's like a good palate cleanser, you know. Um, So sometimes I feel like I don't always like listen to it in one setting, but I just kind of like, just like, oh, I'll start track three or something you know or i'll start track 15 essentially which is track almost like track three to any Mm -hmm. regular record um you know and kind of just see where it takes me you know (laughs) yeah anytime i even get the urge to hear like one song like i'll throw on that one song and then just let it go from there like I, i usually don't stop it for any reason uh do you ever try and like think about like what d boone would be like now if he had not passed away all the time. Yeah. Justin and I just talked about this yeah, earlier today. today. We just <laughs> talked about this. Um, he's my number one what would have happened. Uh-huh. You know, like, what would he have done? How long would the Minutemen stuck around? They probably would have eventually stopped touring or playing. Almost all bands do. Or would just D and Mike be have a new project? Maybe George got tired of touring. I think that's what happened with Firehose. So, like... Would they get mad at each other and stop playing together? I don't think that would ever actually happen. They might need a cooling off period, but I don't know. Like he, but I want to know so bad. Like a lot of people were like, "What if Kurt Cobain had lived?" And it's like, I think we know what Kurt Cobain would be like. He would yeah. he would either go one of two ways. He'd probably disappoint a lot of people or get into like real <laughs> weird music, like a lot of his friends did in Seattle. So. With Kurt Cobain, it's sort of like what contrarian streak would he have picked? You know, like, yeah. you know, I, I, I actually, I think that it would, he would, I think he would almost be like a, a better put together version of Johnny Rotten in a way. You know, like it's like he would probably he'd be a good looking guy and everything, but it's like he would everything would be like counter. It almost be like he would have like a Starbucks album. But he would like push against the notion that he has a Starbucks album, which you'd be like, but you have like a, like just like a jazz record at Starbucks, which is fine, but it's sort of, but then he'd still be difficult, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, is what I imagine (laughs) he would be like, yeah. But D, he just seems like, he seemed like a very nice person. From what I could tell, he didn't seem like he was, had a lot of problems with people. Um 
He's super <clears throat> smart. Probably, honestly, though, it, maybe they just would have gone down this really abstract, like, avant-garde style of music, and then I wouldn't have enjoyed it. I mean, yeah. it's <laughs> very possible. Yeah. Or they went in the pop direction, because there were hints of that. You know, the Project Mersh, which was them doing commercial. Um, and then Three-Way Tie for Last has elements of Project Mersh on that album. It's a shorter record. But, you know, they were going to do that triple album. That was, like, the next thing they were going to do. It was going to be a, a, a three-LP album, because they wanted to do better, than Hus- do more than Husker do. <laughs> what would that have been? Who knows? I... I could imagine them, you know, doing mostly what Firehose did, but better, um, for a while. And then D Boone, I, I don't know. Like maybe he does a country record. Maybe he does. Maybe he gets in really into uh, Latin music. I don't know. <laughs> like yeah. I don't. I don't know what he would do. It's really hard to know. I mean they have so many influences going into their music. There's so many directions that they could have gone. Yeah. Afterward, yeah. after this record, I feel like I could also imagine him being almost like a Tim Berry type. And that it's like, he always will have his people and he'll show up to any town and then those people will come out and, mm-hmm. you know, kind of like that would be his career. Cause it's like, he can fill a, you know, a room so, so if, like, D. Boone had kind of struck out on his own, I feel like it could have been, like, akin to just, like, playing, like, solo acoustic, but in the way that D. Boone would have done. <laughs> so yeah. it would be its own thing, you know? Um, a more enjoyable Jonathan Richmond. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, yeah, because... But, yeah, I feel like Jonathan Richmond also did things where it's, like, he didn't want to use microphone like he didn't want anything to be microphone and then so like if you would like drop a pen while he's playing then he's gonna like yell at you so i hope those elements like he wouldn't be like jonathan richmond yeah um or like he would play with like a drummer but then kind of berate the drummer for like playing too loud (laughs) that's like stories i've heard of jonathan richmond like you know it's like you have to play less than brushes you know (laughs) yeah just think of all the punk documentaries he would have been in. Like he'd be right there <laughs> right. next to Ian McKay with his little beanie and every punk documentary. <laughs> well, we had to glue it together and fold it together. Like explaining it over and over again. I wonder how much the, the D Boone Mike Watt, cause they have their own kind of language. I mean, we've used a lot of those Mersh and, and Econo, the way that they talk. Mike Watt seems kind of frozen in that mm-hmm. speech. I I see tweets from him from time to time because he has a radio show, I think. And, like, he'll say things and I don't understand what he's saying. <laughs> like, I know what the words mean, but they don't make sense together. Yeah. I, and I wonder how that language would have, have evolved between D and Mike because they had so much shorthand together in the way that they talked to each other that spills over into the music that they made. Yeah. I, I would love to hear some really incomprehensible <laughs> dialogue. Like, like now. if they had a pot, they would potentially have a podcast together now. And <laughs> yeah. yeah, you wouldn't be able to tell anything that they were saying unless you just listened all the time. You kind of like would know the like 
the language. So they'd be like Statler and Waldorf from the Muppets, I guess. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, at each other. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, sometimes I think Dylan and I have a little bit of that. Like, we reference things and make jokes about things all the time that, like, only make sense to us or, like, our tiny group of friends. And and we'll do it on the podcast. And I, sometimes I wonder if people are like, what are y'all what are you talking about? <laughs> or we'd have like a pre agreed upon consensus between the two of us. And then like, everyone feels this way. Right. And like, no one feels that way. <laughs> We're the only yeah. ones. Yeah. And are y'all, do y'all have any other siblings? We do. We have, uh, an, a third, uh, there's a third Hensley brother. Um, he is 18 years old now. Uh, I feel like I knew that. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. one day we'll add him to the podcast and then we'll... Okay. <laughs> I always thought that the, it would be really cool and RIP uh, Eddie Van Halen. But what I thought was going to happen is that they were going to like have another kid that would take over as the singer and then it would truly be a family band. Like I was, <laughs> I was certain that, you know, uh, Alex like had a son that they were kind of like, they would have a son that they were training to be like the new singer of Van Halen. And it could have happened, but you know, that's what I like to think like that actual, like kind of family band dynamic, you know, um, you know, I guess that y'all could have, like if you added your brother. On <laughs> Punk yeah. Yeah. I don't know what that show would even be. <laughs> we go through the discographies of family bands. So, <laughs> Yeah. The Osmonds, the Jacksons, Carter family. Uh, there's, n- yeah, there's not a whole lot of them, I guess. Uh, We're doing all like the they're... Gaither records. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like there might be more than we realize. Like, uh, was it like that band Isley? Did they have like siblings yeah. in that band? Weren't they like a trio yeah. of siblings? Or... Yeah, I think it's like there are two siblings, and then someone married mm-hmm. one of them. So I think it's sort of like makes it even more like a family in, in a way. Um, I guess Hanson. Yeah, Hanson's Hanson. the classic. There's, there's Hanson. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, well, Meat Puppets. Um, they're two brothers. Oh, that's right, Kirkwood brothers. I feel like there's some more in like the punk scene too. Oh, Youth Brigade. Jesus. Aren't there brothers in yeah. that band? Yeah. Jesus and Mary Chain, the Reed brothers. Oh, yeah. Oasis. There we go. True. Yeah. <laughs> um. Oh, I'm thinking of. Oh, uh, even like I think early, I think he left at a point, but even like early H2O, like the Morse brothers, you know. Aren't there uh, seven, uh, seven seconds? Don't they have a Seven seconds. Yep. So yeah, it was him and his brother. That's a um, lot. Ian yeah, and Alec. He, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It probably, yeah, it happens a lot. Um, so. Well, we were in a band yeah, together. We were. <laughs> With another set of brothers. Oh yeah. wow. We were two sets of Double. two brothers. <laughs> Did you call it Band of Brothers? <laughs> Probably already taken at that point. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you feel like we talked anything about this record? <laughs> you know, it's it's a hard record to talk about because yes, there are like standout tracks. Like we can sit here and go, yeah, political song from Michael Jackson to sing. That's a great it's just like a song that's Bands on its own or number one hit song. It's just kind of more of an experience as a as a full album, and it feels kind of pretentious to say you know, it's an ex- more of an experience than an album, but like it, it kind of is. Yeah, I, I 
I thought that too earlier when I said like it's this work of mm-hmm. art and I'm like that's that's really overselling it in a lot of ways or like making it seem like something it's not it's totally accessible right. like because even the weird little tracks aren't they're not like super long like it's not none of these songs are long it's not mm-hmm. like a 15 minute free jazz track that's going to be like really difficult for you to get into as just like someone who's never listened to any jazz mm-hmm. you know it, it it's it is punk rock like it's you know it's three chords you know it's yeah. simple ideas i mean like i said the guitar solos are all the same but they're all exciting to me every time like yeah and i can't figure out how to play them <laughs> no yeah yeah i mean i also think it's it kind of like makes me feel in a way that a lot of like blues like albums like make me feel like it feels like no one else could do this this is just totally the way this person is wired you know like that's it's just 100 percent coming from this person authentically um is mm-hmm. you know and that's also what makes it feel like even almost less a punk which i'm agree- i'm agreeing that it is a punk record but it also just feels almost like part of the american songbook but like at the back of it and the pages are kind of weird and <laughs> you know but it, it's like its own thing but it's so innately like the american songbook in its own way so it, it transcends transcends it to me yeah i mean especially if you look at the other albums that came out around the same time period besides zen arcade i mean that's like kind of the other one but even Who's going to also have a lot more albums? And Bob Mould has had a way longer career as a solo artist, too. That you're maybe not as like singularly focused on Zen Arcade as I think Double Nickels is kind of like this is the one to listen to for sure. And you can get a lot more. You can, there's plenty of black. There's so many different types of black flag that like it just depends on whatever you like for that band. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's iconic. It kind of stands alone. Even in their discography, it's a unique piece. So, like we said at the top, uh, you all do Punk Lotto Pod. Uh, what's next for Punk Lotto Pod, if there's even a way to Wait, say that? You mean like next week? <laughs> what, what do you have next week, even though this, uh, even though this episode won't go up next week? Um, you know, doing the show, I feel like we just get better at it. Um I don't know if it's that we get better at just putting our our thoughts together and expressing them in a way that's like not as full of us and ums as it used to be. Like it definitely was really bad <laughs> in the beginning. I edited them all out every time. I think the next thing it's just more gear. Okay. Justin got a new yeah, mic. Yeah. I think we're just gonna we're just gonna buy gear and hoard. We're gonna build up like I'm going to have, like, a whole radio station console just to do, like, three people talking to yeah. each other. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just by switching... Our original format of the show was literally just the two of us. And I think we needed to do that for, for a good while just to get the idea of, like, speaking to where the public can hear you. We had to learn how to tune our guitars. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's always interesting when, I guess, like, with music or even with podcasting, it's like, 
when you see someone kind of come out of the gate and they already have it figured out completely who like what their persona is and how they're going to approach this and i i feel like i can in no aspect of my life could i ever do that no like i'm gonna take everyone on every little journey with me while i figure it out which is what our show is so you were part of that journey too because you were on the show when we started opening up to guests that was a new when you were on the show it was a fairly new thing for us to do and now it's gone to the point where it's like i gotta find a guest for next week like i'm like just planning trying to find as many guests as i possibly can to do the show probably to the point where i could stand or repeat some people again but I don't know if that's what listeners want. It's, I mean, it's just whatever like we decide to do. We started doing the Patreon, too. That's more work every week. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know. I I want to get really good at this. I like doing it. It's it's what started as a way to force Dylan to talk to me on a weekly basis after he moved to Arizona. <laughs> it turned into now, like... If he decided he didn't want to do the show anymore, I think I actually would maybe continue. I'm so uh, if you don't ship up, you're you're gonna be replaced. <laughs> yeah, by by no one. You'll just keep doing. Yeah, it. yeah. We got a younger brother. <laughs> He's in the wings waiting. <laughs> don't think you're safe. Yeah. Well, I mean, I super appreciate you all taking the time to, I guess, talk around this record that we all love. Um, you know, so thank you for taking the time. Well, thank you for having us on. Welcome back. Thanks again to Justin and Dylan for coming on the pod. Love catching up and listening to one of my favorite albums and, you know, just simply chatting with some of my buds that I don't get to talk with enough. So please check out their podcast, Punk Lotto Pod. It's really great, and you're legally obligated to listen if you like what we're doing here. Okay, next week, we're chatting with Julia Steiner of the band Rat Boys. We talked about Silver Sun Pickups' debut album, Carnivores. Honestly, it's a record I've never checked out, but I enjoyed it a lot. Like I mentioned, check out our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash spinningoutpod. Follow us on social media at spinningoutpod. Please leave a review and recommend us to a friend. Thanks as always to Sarah Blumenthal for editing the pod and Pretty Matter for the theme music. With that said, see you next week. <laughs>